0: Welcome, welcome. I appreciate all you guys listening and tuning in, and we have an absolutely great episode for you guys today. I was able to speak with performance trainer Alex Cost, who worked previously with the San Diego State Men's Basketball Program on the performance side of things, and it's just a great mind in the field. So we dove deep into a variety of performance training and strength and conditioning topics that I think you guys will love. So let's get it. What is good, everyone? Hope we're all doing well today. We've got another great guest with us today, performance trainer Alex Cost. We're going to be diving deep into everything performance training. Uh, before we get into everything, I'm going to let him introduce himself, talk a little bit about his journey um, and kind of how he got to where he is. So I'll let you take it away, Alex. Yeah, thanks
1: for having me on, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Um, I guess as most of our uh, our people have said in the APC program, just kind of grew up as an athlete, grew up playing baseball, football, basketball in high school, eventually got to a point where it's like, all right, this career is probably ending, but how can I stay around sports and help people be better and all that kind of stuff? And I had a, a strength coach for my high school football team, actually, that really kind of got me into, I guess, and conditioning, performance training, when I realized that that is something that you could do you can love training and you can help people get better at their sport and what they do and enhance their performance on the field or the court. And that can be your job. And so for me, I love being in the weight room already. I knew my sport wasn't going to take me to where I wanted it to go eventually. So just kind of hopping on that. I've always been interested in the human body and anatomy and things like that. So that kind of led me down to go to the strength conditioning realm, went to a community college, get my GE out of the way, you know, make some money, transferred down to San Diego State, got my bachelor's, went right into a dual masters. While I was there, I was working with the basketball team um, under Randy Shelton. He's now with the Clippers. He's kind of Kawhi Leonard's main guy. And uh, just kind of started out as like a normal intern for the first year, just kind of fly on the wall, trying to soak up as much information as I could, develop relationships with the players, specifically the underclassmen. That's generally who I'd work with more in my first year. And stuff, especially knowing that they would be there in the long run while I was there. And then, um, you know, I just I just kept coming back and I just kept showing up. And, and three years later, I, I kind of worked myself into an assistant role, although I was never actually paid by the school. Like I just kept going and they didn't tell me to stop coming. So I literally for about I worked with them for about three years, got to know some great guys, you know, uh, Jalen McDaniels. He was a second round pick by the Hornets. And that was a guy I worked with a lot when he was a redshirt freshman. And then Malachi Flynn, when he had the year that he had to take off between transferring from Washington State, I worked with him some and just developing good rapport with them. And it really kind of got me into the basketball groove being from the Bay Area. I'm a huge Warriors fan. So this is all happening like right as the Warriors are hitting their peak, like, you know, just winning championships, going to five straight finals. I mean, It kind of just cemented the fact that this is what I want to do. I want to work with basketball players. I want to work with athletes, things like that. And then, um, like I was just telling you right before we recorded, this was supposed to go into professional baseball with the Giants under MLB. That fell through, had another job fall through. So now just kind of navigating the waters of applications and things like that and uh, just learning as much as I can and, and, and soaking it all up.
0: Awesome, awesome. That's, that's tough for me. You mentioned you're a Warriors fan. I'm a Clippers fan. Uh-huh. <laughs> so back, we had we had a little rivalry back in like 2015, 2016, going on for a little while. But you guys put us put us in the dust quickly.
1: There was that uh, there was that awesome Game Seven. Yes, Warriors Clippers yeah. like 2014 or something like that, right? That was a hell of a game. That was a crazy game. I I, I remember that series. That was back when it was like Lob
0: City Clippers with DeAndre yeah. and Blake Griffin. Yeah. Yes. So you you mentioned briefly about your collegiate experience. And I know now you're kinda of in the private sector. What what using your experience as a coach, what, what are the main differences working at that collegiate level and now in the private sector, would you say?
1: Yeah. Okay. So private sector, I would say you have to you have to cue a little bit more. Um in the private sector, athletes are coming to you. So it can be a little bit more um informal, I guess you could say, like a little bit more casual, and you d- you can chop it up a little bit more with the athletes. So kind of finding that line between where are we working and when are we actually, you know, building that relationship. Because as a trainer, as we've learned and stuff, it's not just about telling somebody sets and reps and telling them what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. A lot of it is about develop- developing this relationship and the trust that they, you know, they trust your programming, they trust what you're putting them through. And you want them to keep coming back as opposed to the collegiate sector where they're there because they have to be they're there because if they're not they're probably not going to play They're if they don't go to practice or the weight room you know they're going to lose on their minutes and things like that they might drop a spot in the rotation and so a lot of that tends to bleed into athletes kind of going through the motions so i guess a little bit more motivation Um, aspect in the collegiate levels and letting them know that there is a purpose behind this specifically like I was telling you my beginning year with the with San Diego State a lot of the underclassmen it's very discouraging when you're not seeing the court you're having trouble in the weight room things like that you're not putting up the same numbers you're not even doing the same lifts as some of the minute guys just because you know you're not you're not there just biologically with your age, like you can't get into certain positions, you can't lift a certain amount of weight, you don't have those strength qualities. And so I would say a little bit more on the motivation side on the collegiate aspect, because in the private sector, they're paying to be there. So if they're not there, then they're losing money. And they're like the motivation is generally there. But you can get a little bit more technical with what you're doing and individualize your workouts a little bit more. Whereas in the collegiate sector, again, it's going to be a little bit more broad. And you can kind of group people together, but in general, it's kind of more on that motivation aspect of we like, we need to get this done. And part of the reason I came up with the name translational training is from the collegiate weight room, just thinking about it, like what's a way to get these guys motivation up and Why not showing them that everything we're doing in here is going to translate onto the court? Like this is going to directly affect your performance and this will help you get minutes. This will help you stay healthy. If it's somebody who keeps getting nagging injuries, you know, keeps pulling their hamstring or things like that. So just creating a little bit more buy-in at the collegiate level and a little less informal. Um, You have to be a little bit stricter at the collegiate level, getting people to go through their reps and sets with intent, as opposed to just going through the motions because they have to be there. Um, And I know a lot of that at SCSU was tough because we would lift after practice, which is not (laughs) not very advantageous. So like these guys are coming in just gassed, you know, and trying to make the best of a bad situation, I guess is what you could put it as, where we've talked about in the APC program, like how much adaptation can you make? These guys are already gassed, but really just trying to pull that motivation out and show them, you know, like, this is going to pay off in the long run. In March, when we're going to that tourney, when we're in our conference tournament and stuff, this is, like, this is why we do it.
0: Yeah. I think you said something interesting there. Like, you mentioned the name translational strength. I think in the basketball community, there's this stereotype that hoopers hate to lift. And it's kind of true. So creating an environment or putting a meaning behind why they're lifting and how it can translate to their game is that important so they can see why they're doing certain things in the weight room and how that's going to affect them on the court that's going to increase that buy in and and that and that work in the weight room which is so essential so that's a big thing
1: yeah exactly and and it's not just doing movements that look exactly like what it is on the court you know it's like hey we need to get this this squat number up or we need to get you know this bench press number up because you're getting bullied down there on the block or something like that like we just need you to be stronger And then with that base, you can tell them, you know, now we need to work on more of our sports specific joint angles. So this is where it actually translates directly onto the court, but we can't get to that point unless we hit this step first.
0: Yeah. I guess I'm going to go into anything. Oh, I I was just
1: going to say like, one of the things that's frustrating is they see a lot of stuff on social media and it's just the end result. Everybody sees the end result and they just take it for what it is. And it's not, contextual you know people don't see the process people don't see what they did before they got that 40 inch vert or that 45 inch vert and and that's kind of the things that you have to ingrain is that just just the work ethic you know it's not all it's not all gold it's not all flashing lights and stuff but you just got to get down and dirty sometimes and just do these basic movements because then we can get to that fancy stuff that people want to see
0: i love that i love that. And then kind of going into this next topic, you have with your athletes now, do you have a certain philosophy or foundation that you do to help them maximize their performance? And do you have any unique techniques that you use? I know some coaches do certain things that are a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, What is it with you that you do with your athletes to help them maximize their potential?
1: So one thing I think that I do pretty well that I really enjoy is I like to watch a lot of film. I like to look at a lot of sports specific positions and see where they are utilized a lot in sports. Um, I've been learning a lot about this, but in terms of like attractors and fluctuators, so this is like some Yuri Verkoshansky Russian stuff that I've learned through, um, Max Marzo, but basically attractors are in general, you're going to get those movements whenever you, um, perform, you know, a sports specific movement, like let's say sprinting, you're generally going to have that forward torso lean, that power line, or when you go into a vertical jump, you're going to get slight knee flexion, slight hip flexion, and then coming up. And then the fluctuators are the individual fluctuations in how they perform that movement. So by being able to show athletes that, look, this is a movement you're constantly going to have to hit. Why don't we get good at that? You know, getting good at these basics. And then if they can't, a thing, or a tool I like to use is FRC because it works at the specific joint level, single joint. And let's say they lack hip internal rotation for their absorption force, like on a cross or on a step back or something like that, then we can attack something like that. And I can show them on film, look. Look where his foot's at. Look where his hip is. Look where his knee's pointing right before he's jumping back. This is exactly what you do as well. I can show him his film. So this is what we need to work on, you know? this is why you're not getting that separation on that jump back, or this is why we need to increase that separation and things like that. And just kind of breaking it down to showing them that there is a method to the madness with this. Like I'm not just trying to kill you every single workout just so you can say that you're dead and have a bunch of sweat dripping on the floor and take an IG post of it or something like that. But I guess that is one of the things that I, really like to hang my hat on and why i came up with translational training is whether you're you know a weekend warrior and what you want to work on is being able to carry groceries home like why don't we work on farmer walks like holding dumbbells or like kettlebells you know like that translates to exactly what you want to do you need to have that core work there or whether it's somebody in basketball who keeps falling for fakes on jab steps and stuff it's like why don't we work on some anti-rotation core work like you need to stop falling for these fakes and turning because then you're just getting got and blowing up our defense every single time. Like if you can't stay in front of your man, then our defense goes to crap. So I think that really helps just get buy-in and what kind of separates um, myself is what I would say. Um, I know it is pretty popular now in sports is to look at certain movements and just try to mimic them in the weight room. But what we just talked about, like working on the progressions that you can use to get there, is also extremely important. And all that stuff is nice and fancy, but if you don't have those meat and potatoes or you don't have that solid foundation, then you're not really gonna be able to make that much adaptation with those just
0: fancy movements. Yeah, that's awesome. I like the film stick like, for so many athletes are visual learners, so they can see that, see what they need to work on and kind of how it applies. Like we mentioned earlier, that's all the difference right there. Yeah, exactly. So- I know you work a lot with basketball athletes, but you also mentioned um, to me earlier that you work with football and baseball. How does that training differ from basketball? I think you would say probably the basics are the same, but once you get into into the little details, what, what is it that changes?
1: Yeah, so again, I think a lot of this comes from knowing your sport, watching film, understanding positions that they have to get into, and then training them for those positions. So baseball by nature, whether we're throwing or hitting it's rotation based. So, you know, working on hip shoulder dissociation also working on some anti-rotation. So we're not overworking our eccentric muscles to slow down that rotation as well. Or if we're a thrower or a pitcher, you know really working on our external rotation capacity and maybe increasing that range of motion. Cause a lot of pitchers come here before they throw but they're not controlling back here. This is more of a reflex just to create that whip action to get that ball moving forward. But if we can control back here, we can produce more force coming forward and increase that velocity. Or like, let's say we're working with a, like an offensive lineman in football, you know, instead of just going with a two pound or, or a two dumbbell press, we go with the one, because usually they have one arm out blocking somebody while they need to work over here with another one. Like so again, just knowing the specific demands of the sport that they're going to use. And again, like we talk with basketball, A lot of it is in the frontal plane transverse plane as well, but quick agility stuff so working a little bit more on like power development. And things like that and being able to get in and out of breaks really quick, I like to work on absorption and propulsion a lot with basketball and one thing that people don't realize as much is just like with basketball so much of it is flow like having a rhythm, having a flow, being able to do all that kind of stuff. So doing things like I've seen Corey Schlesinger on IG and I'm sure you've done it, but like the contract relax kettlebell catches and things like that. So movements that maybe you're not chasing a specific muscle adaptation with it, but you're just trying to ingrain certain flows that flow into these people, which can still translate onto the court. Like this is where my feet are moving, I'm bouncing, I'm feeling these muscles contracting, these ones relaxing. I'm not trying to get any stronger but i'm really just trying to ingrain these movement patterns and motor engrams without getting these other physiological adaptations so again just training with a purpose and and in order to do it you really have to understand that sport and those sport positions that they really need to get to you know because there's no point in not working rotation with a baseball player if that's what they're going to do a bunch or just trying to bulk them up just so they can hit the ball farther it's like yeah they're they strong and they might be able to hit the ball but can they actually hit the ball like do they have good hand-eye coordination you know like maybe you need to just work on like taking bp <laughs> like maybe that's just what they need to work on so i mean it again yeah like for me i played all three growing up so i understand football baseball and basketball well but if i were to start training you know, volleyball or swimmers or soccer players. I would have to go watch more film and understand
0: what do they need to get into. You know, I like that. How do you go about? Because I don't work with baseball athletes. I don't have any experience with them. How do you go about that rotational development? What does that What does that progression look like?
1: Yeah. So first, I would always start with stability, definitely with rotation, because a lot of people. When they're going through a rotation they go through a movement and then try to get back through it just so they can stabilize but the point is to stabilize at the end of the movement gotcha. so if it makes sense like trying to work like a i don't know like a cable punch where you punch but then you come back quick just so that you're stabilized instead of punching and holding at the end mm-hmm. where that's where you need to be stable and then also again with a lot with pitchers is you need to work on that front leg that front absorption leg so you can work again a lot on like forward lunges on this absorption leg with some sort of crossover on that forward lunge because that mimics their movement a lot and then if you really want to get specific you can look into like which way they bat lefty or righty and then so okay they're rotating this way like if i hit right i'm going to rotate over my left hip so i need to use my right oblique and my right side of my core to decelerate that rotation or else i'm going to tear something over here So you can get super specific into it. And obviously you don't want to have a bunch of muscle imbalance, but you also don't want to train them to be symmetrical if their sport is by nature asymmetrical, which is something I've learned a lot lately because I've always been like, oh, there's asymmetries here. Let's just hammer it out and even everything out. It's like, well, maybe that is what makes them good at what they do. You know, like if I have a pitcher who throws right-handed, he's obviously going to favor rotating over his left hip and throwing right-handed like is there a need for me to make him better at throwing left-handed is he ever gonna do that you know maybe i just need exactly like you can throw work in there for like gpp for sure like just preparing them and not trying to make their asymmetry you know more exacerbated in a sense but i think it comes back to a quote that i like i don't know if it was pjf but it's like When you're training somebody, don't just try to train their weakness, but you also need to train at what makes them good. What like, what makes them super or a superhero, what they do, you know?
0: I like that. I like all that stuff. That's awesome. Um, So I want to move on a little bit and dive deep into a topic that actually you went into depth on your, on your IG page. And it was tendon and soft tissue loading. And uh, I think it's something that's, not misunderstood, but a lot of athletes that aren't, they don't have coaches. um, They don't understand this stuff. And it's something that's really important for preparation, for general physical preparation, for season, um, preseason type stuff. And it can avoid a lot of injuries or reduce the risk of injuries. Um, So if you want to go in depth a little bit about um, the different parts of that um, and just talk, just talk everything about that.
1: Yeah, so this is an idea that I kind of, I didn't come up with it myself because I have a spectrum that I came up with my man, with my mentor, it's called our zero to 60 spectrum, so kind of like acceleration and stuff, but also working specifically with tendon and soft tissue. I've learned a lot of this through Dr. Keith Barr. He's a researcher at UC Davis and Jill Cook as well. She's really big into tendinopathy, but... Basically, you need to work on your soft tissue and tendon health. Most people focus on their muscle, and that is all good and well. It's the contractile element of motion, and that needs to be worked on. But if you neglect your soft tissue, which is what transmits your force between muscles and joints and things like that, then that's where you get power leaks. That's where you get injuries. That's where you get overused tendinopathies and tendonitis and things like that. So it's really important to understand that your tendons And just your joint capsules and ligaments need to be trained in these positions that they're going to be put into because the demand is going to be there. And this, this series is something that I was actually really proud of on Instagram. It got a good amount of engagement just from what I was expecting, but the progression generally goes from, you start with isometrics. So isometrics and increasing the force. So you can put them in different ranges. So let's say we're working on our Achilles tendon. We can work on isometrics in our neutral position Working our dorsi or our plantar flex position, and then in our dorsiflex position. So we're working that Achilles at three different lengths. And so by working in this isometric, we're enhancing cross-linking within the tendon and the muscle, not the muscle tendon unit, but independently the tendon and the muscle. So we're increasing its capacity independent of one another. And then from these isometrics, we can go into more tempo work. So some slower isotonics, like some tempo eccentrics to increase our force capacity in the muscles that are connected to these tendons. So anything, you know, from like a three count on the way down to a squat or a bench or things like that, but just putting a little bit more of that physiological mechanical tension damage on the muscle. And then we can increase our speed of movement here to work on a little bit of force and power development from there or load these eccentric movements a little bit heavier and then increase the speed of the concentric movements because as we start to increase the movement speed as a whole, this is where we start to get the cross-linking between the tendon and the muscle. So now we're working on transmitting our force from the tendon into the muscle throughout the entire kinetic chain. And then once we focus on doing that very well, you, know, you can increase the complexity of the lift that you wanna do. You could start with just a high pull from your knee Or you could go all the way down to the ground just to work more joints and a longer kinetic chain. And then as it relates to the Achilles tendon, we probably want to use it for jumping. So then we can go into some like extensive plyometrics. So we're starting to utilize that stress shortening cycle. We're increasing that capacity of the tendon by going extensive, lower intensity, lower amplitude, longer time, longer duration and then from there we can progress into our intensive plyometrics which are higher amplitude higher force productions quicker stretch shortening cycle usually lower ground contact time we're going for like max jump heights here maybe we're even doing some loaded jumps some uh, accentuated eccentric loading here again to try to augment some power into that stretch shortening cycle but generally working from no speed in our isometric movements to high speed and power so we're working force capacity in the tendon muscle independently and then we're working on transferring that force within the muscle tendon complex and then we go into our stretch shortening cycle movements which are extensive and intensive plyometrics and by nature those are going to be more intensive than any of the movements that we do in our isotonics or isometrics just because it's a more powerful movement anytime you're doing a plyo whether it's extensive or intensive it's just going to be a little bit more powerful than
0: what we would normally see Exactly. I love that. I think we almost go back to the beginning when you said social media takes away, um, from, from lifting and the performance side because we see all this flashy stuff. And a lot of the stuff you described is that, is that, I don't don't know how you described it, but, um, it's the little things that we need to work on that we don't want to do. It's the, it's the dirty work. Um, but that matters so much to keeping us healthy and keeping our, our, our tissues, um, healthy. And I know in basketball, I think tissue problems and tissue injuries, especially soft tissue injuries are a big problem mm-hmm. um, I dealt with it. I had tendinopathy. Um, and i know so many hoopers have it. So that's why this stuff can be so important or, and is so important for those players. Cause basketball is one of the sports that puts, I think the most demand or most stress on those tissues, just due, yeah. due to the nature of the court or sport, the change of direction, sport deceleration. So you're putting a lot of stress on those tissues, um, especially the patella tendon. Um, that seems to have so many injuries throughout the year at the collegiate, high school, and professional level. Yeah, um, ex-
1: totally. And and what what got me into it because I wrote about Achilles tendinopathy and load management for my grad thesis was KD tearing his Achilles. You know, in in the finals. And if you look at when a lot of these basketball players tear their Achilles, it's usually in the propulsion phase, trying to go forward. So like he went into a cross trying to drive forward. So his foot is, or his left hip was in extension. So his left foot is behind him and he's trying to push forward. So his Achilles is in that extreme lengthened position as he's pushing. And that's where it snaps. So what a lot of people do is they work tendons, but just in one position. Why would you not want to work it plantar flex, dorsiflex, and neutral? Especially when you're close to
0: those positions in sport all the time.
1: Exactly. I mean, every time somebody drives in basketball, you can think of it as almost like they're a sprinter coming off the block, whether it's just for one or two steps, but that's still the same position they're trying to hit. They're trying to have that lower torso angle. They're trying to get by their defender, get to the basket as quick as possible. And that heel is usually floating above the ground as they're pushing forward. And that tendon is in that fully lengthened position. So why would you not want to train it there and make sure that that tendon has the capacity to absorb and then transmit as much force as you want to put it through.
0: I love that. That's a great point. That's an awesome point. Um, and then this can kind of relate to something that, that we're talking about in our class right now. And you actually had, had a series on it, on the agile, um, the acute to chronic load, mm-hmm. expand a little bit on that and how it's important for preparation for season, preseason type stuff to allow your body and tissues to build some tolerance for the loads that you're going to take on during season. You want to expand a little bit?
1: Yeah. Uh, so this was again something I came across from my the grad thesis. I read those two IOC papers and some more on load management, and it was something that I was just like enthralled with. I mean, this was when Kawhi was sitting out with load management for the Raptors and stuff as well. Because um, uh, yeah, I got my grad degrees in 2019, so I was like, huh, like why, like why is this a big thing? Why is Popovich starting to sit all these people? And like, what is the thought process behind this? And then you learn about the acute to chronic workload ratio and it seems weirdly familiar in our industry because this is basically what we do like ram was talking about today like we program basically our acute to chronic workload ratio like that is our job is to increase these people's capacity so that when they get to their sport and in season they have the capacity to do that and whether or not you get there you know a little bit quicker a little bit longer could be you know, uh, like a serious injury. And this is where the acute chronic workload ratio comes in, because how fast are you progressing them through your program? Some trainers, I'm sure you get a guy just for like four weeks during the off season, and you want to show them everything that you can take them through. And so you just quickly get them through there. And then you're increasing the intensity, you're increasing movement complexity. And you know, you're doing sprints by week four when you were just doing marches week one. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, how much can this guy really take? Like, are we going into overtraining? Are we going into overreaching and stuff like that? So I think it's, it it's just really important to understand how fast you are progressing through, through certain things. And it kind of goes back to, like we said, like starting off with basic stuff, let's just increase this capacity here. Like it might not be sexy. It might not be on IG, but it's necessary. This is what we need to do. And I just heard it was drew Hanlon on the PJF podcast And he said he was taking Myers Leonard through a workout and Eric Spolster came and this is Myers Leonard was a free agent. And he just told Eric Spolster, he's like, Hey, all we're doing is working on our balance on our jump shot today because that's what Myers needs to work on. And Myers was telling him like, no, man, like let's do like some dunks. Let's do all this. Like I want to show off. Like I want to try to like, you know, get a job because I'm a free agent here and like get signed by the heat. And Eric Spolster just said, great. That's what he needs to work on. Exactly. So even if players want to do certain things and they want to be sexy and they want to get all that, it's our job to understand the science behind this stuff and know that if we progress them too fast, we are putting them at risk for injury. And whether it's validated or not, the acute to chronic workload ratio is just a thought process that I think every coach should have in their mind when they're going through things. You're not just going to progress somebody from jogging two miles you know three times a week to all of a sudden we're just doing max 40 yard sprints next week like that's not a correlation that's an easy way to get injured and it's just it, it it's good to see it out there in the research because i think it's something that we've always known yeah. but seeing it quantified and seeing actual equations to how you can objectively say this guy could very well get injured tonight if we play him because every game is considered a max acute day, basically a max acute load. Um, I think it just helps the communication amongst the entire training staff of an organization. Again, I've never been with a professional organization, but I would imagine like what Ram was talking about, like, hey, you know, maybe we sit this guy today, not that you have to head coach, but me, the AT, the PT are all talking and he's just, you know, he's kind of out of it. He's just feeling a little fatigued. And we have been ramping up his workload a little bit lately, so maybe we need to taper back and sit him today and stuff like that. So I think it does just help the whole, the cohesion of an entire franchise and organization kind of gel together a little bit more because it's something we've always known a little bit. But it's never really been able to be quantified, and it's not even quantified still now. Like people say the acute to chronic workload ratio, well, is it 7 to 28 days? Is it 7 to 42 days? Is it 3 to... 15 days you know like what is the best ratio and the research coming out now says that the exponentially mechanical weighted average should be used over that i don't know what that formula is but that's what i've been seeing in the research and it's just one of those things that it's probably going to take another three to five years before anything gets validated but it's it doesn't matter about the validation of the equation or what is the best way to calculate acute chronic workload ratio the concept of progressing your guys slowly over time so that they can make adaptation and work generally up and to the right, instead of down and to the right. And we're not going into overreaching or overtraining that's paramount. That's what you need to understand about the acute to chronic workload ratio, not how many steps, what are our ground contacts? What are all that stuff? Like you can, and having data is, I mean, it's good if you're going to use it and try to analyze it, but just, What, like, why are you actually getting it?
0: You know? I like that. And I think another thing to consider, and obviously you know this as well, but take a holistic approach with it. It's not just the load you're doing in the weight room. You need to understand the other stressors, uh, how sleep, nutrition, life stressors, fatigue, all that affects this. And sometimes some weeks you need to push it back a little bit based on how they're feeling, based on their numbers, based on what it looks like. So we make sure we avoid any risk of injury or at least reduce the risk. So understanding that it's not just the weight room side of things. There is their outside life that matters just as much.
1: 100%. And that is where the weight room comes into effect too with it. It's like, Hey, like I teach a collegiate sports team. This is finals week. Maybe I taper back this week. You know, they're getting a lot of mental stress. If there's players on this team who, and it's very likely that you could go through three finals in one day, like you don't want to do anything after that. Like your brain is so dead. You're so fried. Your, your movement patterns are probably going to look like shit. Like, it's just like you don't want to be there. So maybe you just go through an active recovery day just because you have something written down on a program doesn't mean it's set in stone. And I really liked the quote that Ram had about this, which was, um, you should always abide by your own rules, but rules never outweigh reality. Yes. And so you just again, you have to be conceptual, like maybe everybody else is feeling good one day, but you talk to one of your guys and he's like, yeah, you know, like my dad's in the hospital. He had a heart attack or something like that. So maybe that guy tapers it back that day. Like, you know, it, it, it's all individual not everybody goes through the same thing every day. Maybe some people work overnight jobs and things like that. So maybe they have to train on different days and what other people are supposed to train on. But you're 100% right. It's not all just about external load we're applying in the weight room. There's family issues. There's socioeconomic issues. There's nutrition. There's sleep. There, I mean, it's, it's, it's all under the umbrella of acute to chronic workload ratio. It by no means
0: is just what we objectively can calculate. Exactly. Exactly. Love it. So we'll move on from that. Um, next thing, I want to talk a little bit about basketball training. Um, that's your main sport. It's what I do as well. So working with basketball athletes, um, what do you think are the biggest qualities, athletic qualities that that they need to develop to be successful? I would
1: say, honestly, max strength. I think max strength capacity is really overlooked. It's not sexy, but just the capacity to produce more force is huge because usually when you can produce more force, you can absorb more force. And I think force absorption is something that's not looked at as much. And a lot of people just work on power and stuff like that. But in order to increase your power and increase your max velocity, the underlying aspect is max force. One thing I also will say with basketball athletes is just a little bit of mobility. So being able to own certain ranges because you have to get and do some weird ranges and you're not going to be able to produce force well if you can't get into certain ranges. And then on top of that, obviously, like quickness, agility. Like, how good are you at reacting? And this is another post I just did on edgy or not. I just submitted it to edgy. I don't know if it's posted yet, but I did on my IG and we just did the COD agility stuff. But you you also don't have to just throw athletes into small sided games and mirroring and stuff like there's a progression to get from change of direction up into agility and mirroring and things like that. And you can categorize these guys because not everybody's a fast mover, a fast thinker. Like sometimes you just need to work with simply the lights. Like maybe they're not processing that information fast enough. And if you can't react in basketball, then you're just going to get burned every time. And then you're going to have, you know, like I'm sure you know from playing, it's like if you're playing defense and you give up a bucket, you have this feeling now like, oh, now I need to even it out. Like I need to get a bucket. And then you can get in this like game within the game against your guy, which doesn't help the team at all. You know, and, and just by understanding processes like that with basketball, that there's a progression, I think is huge, but I would say max strength because these guys are generally so tall and lengthy and skinny. So they have trouble producing force, Um, especially at deeper joint angles. I don't, I wouldn't coach deeper joint angles all the way up until the season, but it's something I would definitely hit on in the beginning of the season. And then you get more sports specific like quarter squat and things like that as you get closer to the season. Um, But from an injury resiliency standpoint, like they're already elastic. Basketball players are generally elastic. They're pretty bouncy and things like that, but they can usually work on the force capacity, force production side. So that is one thing I would say a new idea that's been coming out is like functional hypertrophy. So like what position do we play? Do we need to be big? Like if we're a center and we're just getting bullied and we can produce force, but we're still a little bit small. Like maybe we just do a little bit of hypertrophy work to like, there's some, there's some meat on there. Like maybe we want some Dwight Howard shoulders, you know, like <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it, again, it's all contextual and stuff, but I would say force, force production, force absorption for sure. And just working that in terms of impulse. So like working on producing force and, smaller time periods and absorbing force in smaller time periods just because that's when basketball happens and a lot of the research sports specific movements happen within like two to three hundred milliseconds so getting that early rate of force development that early rate of force absorption is huge in my opinion and then just just footwork and just like technique and mobility because they are so tall and lengthy like very easy to get some knee valgus in there with a lot of basketball players so trying to help them with that. I'm not super against any knee valgus because a lot of guys get it, but some of it comes from slight hip internal rotation, like upon propulsion and things like that. But just training them to own these these positions and movements and just get to know them better, you know, like in our deep squat or, or in like a deep rear foot elevated split squat and things like that. So I think mobility helps out a lot for sure, but primarily I would say strength and then, if you wanted to program it, you could go, you know, like your A1 is a strength work, and then your A2 is like a mobility work. So maybe you do like a heavy front squat and then just match it up with like some FRC hip internal rotation or hip external rotation. So you can kind of kill two birds with one stone because mobility work usually work is usually good for like an active recovery from like your heavy strength stuff.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome stuff. And then I think a big thing with basketball players is we get so much demand and volume on the court. We get so much stress to the knee area. How do you, how do you balance that with the weight room? For example, plyometrics, we're getting so many jumps on the court. Do you monitor that in the weight room? Like do you or try to reduce the landing force and maybe using boxes? How do you go about that?
1: Yeah, no, great question. So weirdly enough at SDSU, um, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but we didn't do any plyos in the weight room, like none for, for the three years I was there. It was thought that you get enough on the court, don't need to train anything in the weight room. Me personally, if I ran the program, I would definitely work on plyos for sure in the weight room. And then in the beginning, like in preseason, like if we're talking, we get this guy, like everything's perfect. You know, preseason, I would work my way up with my plyos. Like we talked in that zero to 60 spectrum and then. Right in the beginning of the season, we're working our, our intensive plyos, we're getting some max, max effort here, some max propulsion, but then I would taper back and start to focus more on force absorption. So maybe like altitude landings in season okay. and things like that, or like going from standing up, dropping into a split squat, things like that, if that makes sense, like a snap down progression almost. So just really reinforcing landing mechanics in season and where I would program that is a little bit towards the end of the workout, because I would like them to do that under a little bit more fatigue. Lauren Landa talks about that a little bit. So like single leg bounding and sticking just under fatigue, because so much of this happens under fatigue in basketball. Like it's a very fatiguing sport. And so if your mechanics go to crap, when you get fatigued, then that's when you're probably going to have an injury, Mm -hmm. but you know, so Kind of just undulating between that and forced propulsion in season, and then as we would get into the postseason or stuff, maybe come back into our extensive and intensive plyos, but the intensity is a lot lower, the volume's a lot lower. Maybe we're just performing, you know, like you said, like box jumps by three, so we're decreasing that that landing impact on the box jump, but we're getting that mass that max propulsion effort, yeah. or maybe we're doing a broad jump with a band, so we're decreasing that shear force at the knee upon landing but we're still getting that max triple extension propulsion effort in the sagittal plane and things like that um i don't think i would program it terribly like sorry not terribly but like a lot in season yeah just because there is so much going on but if i were to do anything it there would probably be some sort of post activation potentiation there maybe like slight French contrast training. That's a lot of high volume. So maybe you only do like one or two sets of that with very low reps in the beginning of the season. And then as we went more into in-season, I wouldn't focus on propulsion. I would focus more on absorption and then come back into our extensive intensive going into like postseason and stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think it made me think, I think PJF said in one of his podcasts, but for those that think that you get all your plyometrics on the court, those really really are all sub-maximal you don't get a bunch of maximal jumps. Like you're not going up for a layup max effort every time. Yeah. I think it is important to program in those max effort, high intense jumps because you don't need a bunch of them, but at least get some of those in. Cause you're not getting those necessarily on the court. They're all, like I mentioned, sub max jumps. Um, so we still want to expose a, a, ourselves to those. Um, so just a thought I had. And then one last thing with basketball training is it is such a quad dominant sport, change of direction sport. I know a lot of people like to train things that athletes aren't getting in their sport in the weight room. Um, obviously a big one is we never reach full flight stage. Yeah. Um, how much do you do outside of not sport specific training, but how much do you like to expose them to positions, to stressors that they will not see on the court?
1: Yeah, no, great question. And uh just kind of going back to that plyo's in season, a way that you can do it on the court too is like maybe you have a drill where it's just one on one, somebody's attacking the basket, somebody's defending it. You just gotta try to jump and just finish at the rim. So you can get a little bit of intensive plyo there, but maybe you know you're just rotating in. You're working on finishing, but also trying to get up as high as you can at the same time. So so there are ways to incorporate it into more of skill sessions as well. So you don't have to do it in the weight room per se. Cause again, everything usually feels like more work in the weight room as opposed to fun on the court. Cause you have basketball on your hands. Um, so, but going back to this question, I think hamstrings and glutes and posterior chain is huge. Like everything usually happens because you either have a weak posterior chain or you haven't developed it enough. Because yeah, you can have overproductive quads and things like that, but you can also just train your hammies to counteract that as well. Like you don't have to just detrain your quads. You can just pump up those hammies a little bit in those sports specific positions. So like I do like a lot of hinging. I think that is just a great movement to teach athletes, whether it's RDL, single leg RDL, or whether you're doing something like a glute bridge or like a barbell hip thruster or things like that but working on just driving through the heel and getting a lot of glute hammy activation. I think that's huge because again, like you said, you don't really reach max flight stage, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't train it because you could. And so I, another hammy exercise I love is like posterior planks. Yes. So something that's hitting that hammy in that lengthened position as well. And then you can go elevated to get a little bit more demand with it. But something that could be good with that is, maybe you go from something like a quarter squat or a quarter rear foot elevated squat right into some hammy work. So you can get that athlete to feel, this is how my quad's firing during these movements and then this is how my hammy is firing during the other movements, instead of doing something that would be like glute and then hammy or things like that. Just like getting the athlete more autonomy over their body in a sense and letting them know that this is what this should feel like in these certain positions, so that they can use that musculature in those positions. You know, like with the posterior plank, this is what it should feel like when we're decelerating because our hammies are in this lengthened position. We have slight knee bend. So, this is where you should be getting that firing coming from. And then, I mean, not that you wouldn't do any quad work, but just not like harping on quad, like quad work. Like, yeah, I'll do quarter squats and things like that and like rear foot elevated and cue athletes to push a little bit more through the ball their foot and midfoot to get more quad activation on certain exercises but i'm not going to tell them to go do leg extensions yeah. you know like i'm not going to tell them to go just do bodybuilding stuff for their quads just so that they have big quads because they think big quads means they jump higher you know <laughs> but it's also important to let them know that hey like if you overdevelop this one then this guy is probably going to come back to bite you in the butt somehow literally if you're talking about quads and the hammy but like again with a pitcher like if you're always just throwing as hard as you can you're probably going to tear your rotator cuff at some point like if you're not doing any sort of external rotation work on that shoulder it's going to be your limiting factor yeah and so we should always increase the capacity of our limiting factor because then we can increase the capacity of our antagonist or the muscle that we're actually using. That's great
0: stuff. That's great stuff. So we'll move on from that. um, Get into our concluding topics. I want to talk about the title tank. Yeah. I think it's a tool that's becoming a lot more popular these days now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that I'm really interested in. I don't have access to one, but it's something I've thought about getting. So if you kind of want to explain what it is and then kind of the purpose and benefits of the tool when it comes to training. Yeah. So I
1: love it. Um, this is something I got during quarantine, basically just using water in like a rubber or plastic casing, basically, and you can fill it up as much or as little as you want. The tidal tank, the one I have, the main one gets up to like 45 pounds. So you can get to be pretty heavy. You can work on some good force development there and nothing really max strength, but I like to use it more with some plyos just to work on balance and coordination with it. The reason I love it specifically is for perturbation training. So like something I love is doing like a rear foot or sorry, a four foot heel elevated split squat and shaking the tidal tank in front. So yep. it's trying to get me to rotate side to side and I'm trying to fight that. And then I'm trying not to let my front knee sway too much. Or again, you can do something like I would load it up a little more, maybe like 10 to 15 pounds and have guys do skater plyos with it, where they're trying to rip through. But just cause there's water as you rip through, now you're going to have increased force on top of what you already produced going in that lateral direction so now you have to absorb more force than what you're used to which translates great to a game because a lot of times you have so much speed going into something because you don't really train like max speed lateral absorption yeah but this can kind of augment that increased force or maybe you get pushed going into a drive where you have to stop and then go up you know so i like things like that or we can front rack it and do some plyos with it cuz every time you jump the water is going to move around so it augments getting bumped in the air and good landing mechanics but also what it does is as you jump you can tell if the water's dipping to my left I'm probably pushing more through that right if it's dipping to my right I'm pushing a little more through that left so trying to keep that water level is a great way to work on balance and coordination like you could even like I like to hold it over my head as well and just stand in the march position just work on like intrinsic ankle movement Cause I can feel if I'm swaying one way, that water is going to want to pull me down and then I got to kind of recoup myself. Awesome. But I think it's a great tool. I mean, it was only like 70 bucks. You can load it from five pounds up to 45 pounds. And there's so many different ways that you can use it because you can go from plyos to like a beginner level, like basketball player, like somebody who's even younger. If we're talking like long-term athletic development, just giving them five pounds in the title tank and asking them to squat yeah. And if you see them keep moving back and forth, you're going to help them put equal force out through both legs. So you're going to help be able to work on those asymmetries that they may have, which is something that we want to in younger athletes, because yeah. they're not pro they're not utilizing that asymmetry to make money. Mm-hmm. So we, so we want to reinforce symmetry in those athletes as opposed to a guy like, you know, like I'm not going to tell Clayton Kershaw or like, I don't know, David Price or any of those guys that they need symmetry when they're like, dude, I want to say young. It's like, all right. Yeah. Like, keep doing what you're doing basically. But yeah, I mean, perturbation training, I think is huge in terms of stability. And I, it, it's Shay Frazee. I think he's a NBA shooting coach, but he has a great quote called, you can't shoot a cannon from a canoe. So it goes along with the force stability paradigm. And what I really like to use the title tank for stability training, whether it's on force absorption or force propulsion, where we want to get equal propulsion out of both, you know, like either both legs or both arms, or if I'm still on my single leg trying to balance myself with that water before I actually move up into the air. And then I have to focus on balancing myself with different forces coming down, which I think in basketball works great because hardly do you ever go to the basket and not get touched. Yeah, exactly. So it's just those micro movements that you have to account for on your force absorption landing, which is not only having that, increase force capacity because if you get hit in the air now you're going to increase your landing velocity, but you're also coming down at a different vector. So you need to apply force opposite that in order to stabilize yourself. So a great way to augment that. If you're not jumping up and having your trainer push you or you don't have a band or anything like that, the tidal tank and water is just a great way.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, Matt, Matt Cooper got me on it. I saw a lot of his stuff. Um, he talks about just the the proprioception benefits of it, kind of start awareness and space. Exactly. It also allows for some self-organization stuff, and it does work those more intrinsic muscles, the stabilizers, maybe intrinsic muscles in your feet, you're getting, getting out of your shoes, um, that we often don't hit when we're doing our big lifts yeah, in training. And those are the little things that can allow those bigger movers to express more force. So when we, when we can improve those, you're going to see improvements in performance, even though it's maybe not be the most fancy or flashy stuff. Those are the little things that make a big difference.
1: Exactly, and there's not many things in the weight room that you can use where the load is so variable. Yeah, Like if it's dumbbells or if it's bands or if it's a barbell or if it's a kettlebell or a sandbag or, I mean, like anything, it's it's generally the loads going in one direction. And that's what it is. Unless you have somebody literally pushing you and things like that, or like shake, even if somebody's shaking the band, you're still just getting perturbations and force in one direction. With the tidal tank, you literally have to account for it And it could either be forward, backward, side to side, like if you're adding a rotational component to it, you have to work on anti-rotation. But like you said, proprioception is huge, knowing where your body's at in space, and then being able to stabilize with your body in space so that your main movers, like we said, your attractors, can actually produce that force and get you to where you wanna go.
0: Exactly, yep. All right, well, that is the last of the topics. We're gonna head into a speed round. So I'll ask you about about five questions. Um, They'll be answered. Five to ten seconds, quick, quick, quick answers. Uh, yeah. So the first one will be, what do you think is the most important quality as an athlete?
1: The most important quality as an athlete. This could
0: be wow, quality or just like a personality quality,
1: whatever you. That's think. a good one. I would say confidence. Okay, I like that. Confidence, no matter what, just not being able to get down on yourself. Whether you miss ten shots in a row, whether you, you know, you're just in the gutter. It. I mean, it doesn't matter. You got to have confidence because. In the end, if you don't have confidence in yourself, nobody else is going to have confidence in you. Exactly. Um,
0: Do you think you can be a successful athlete as a vegan or vegetarian?
1: Yes, with proper supplementation. So I think a lot of athletes think that they want to go vegan and vegetarian because a lot of other athletes do it. But again, this is one of those end product things. You don't understand everything that goes into it. You're immediately going to become deficient in things like iron and calcium generally, because that's what you get from animal products. And so if you understand and it's calculated and you know when you have to take certain supplements and things like that, then yes, by any means, go ahead and do it. But if you're just doing it on your own and you don't really understand what you're going to become deficient in generally, again, protein is a big thing that vegan and vegetarian athletes, um, fall victim to because you just the sheer amount of food that you have to eat to get the calories and the correct macros in is hard, but yes, if. If you understand what you're doing and you've talked to a dietitian and things like that, I have my master's in nutrition, but by no, I'm not RD. I don't think I can recommend anybody any nutrition stuff in the state of California. I can give, I can give like ideas, I think, but I can't literally give recommendations. But yeah, basically you better, like you better know what you're doing. If, if you're going to do it, don't just stop eating animal products, because that's what somebody else did.
0: I think you mentioned a little bit, it takes so much more planning and timing. There's a lot more cooking. So I think you need to understand all all the demands it does take to do that.
1: Yeah. And honestly, just like the sheer amount of volume, like if you want to get the same amount of calories, like if I ate a four ounce piece of meat, I would have to eat literally like six cups of broccoli, which is just like a, a bunch of food. Like some people don't have the stomach for that. Exactly.
0: And then um, working at the D1 level, what do you think is the biggest difference between D1 athletes and maybe those that go D2, D3, AIA? One, I would say confidence. And then
1: two, I would also say is just work ethic. Like they understand what they're bad at and they want to get good at what they're bad at. And then, I mean, obviously genetics to a certain degree, like some people are just predetermined to be great, your mom might've been an Olympic sprinter. Your dad might've been an Olympic high jumper. Like, I mean, you're probably going to go D1 if that's the case, but yeah, just work ethic, non-complacency, always wanted to get better.
0: Gotcha. And this is one I asked all my guests, what would you want your superpower to be? What would I
1: want my superpower to be? Probably the ability to fly.
0: Okay. I like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to dunk so then I could dunk. (laughs) <laughs> and then i wouldn't have to pay for airline travel and stuff
0: yeah, anywhere you want yeah i don't know what have other people said um transportation's a big one okay um i think one was knowledge that was mine like be able to know everything that's mine yeah. i have the aspirations to learn everything but like if i just knew everything i think it'd take away from the learning process but i'd be like i can get you better no matter what like i know what i need to do
1: i feel like that'd be a double-edged sword for me because then i think i would just start to overthink everything yeah, as well that's
0: fair that's fair and then i think somewhere like on the athletic standpoint i asked what would your superpower be so they said um like pure athleticism so I'll be able to jump 40 inches stuff yeah like that. for
1: athleticism i would say like speed like being able to run like a 4 240 would be pretty sweet
0: yeah, that's true can't beat that yeah And then last one I got for you is what do you think the biggest strength and conditioning myth is?
1: The biggest strength and conditioning myth. That's a tough one. Wow. I'm sure a lot of people say this, but just that you have to, you know, like you have to work hard every single day. You have to sweat, you have to grind every single day. And while you do have to grind every single day, it doesn't mean you have to hit the weights and you have to kill yourself every single day. Like Grinding can mean that you take an active recovery day. Grinding can mean that you sleep in and don't get something else done because you needed to recover that day. Like grind like everybody just associates grinding with like I'm in the weight room, I'm nonstop going, I'm going, I'm going. It's like, well, you're eventually gonna burn out at some point. Like
0: it goes it goes with the like no pain, no gain saying, which I don't yeah. it's not true. I think we've we've gotten over that standpoint or that saying. Some people might still agree with it, but like you mentioned, you don't need to kill yourself every day. Yeah, as long as you're getting work in, it may be that functional recovery day, or exactly, or hitting hitting a two RM for squat. There there are those different days, but yeah, that isn't that grinding process
1: exactly? And by no means does it mean you should never work hard, but it just means that you don't always have to go in and max out every single day. And uh, Coleman Ayers talked about this on his new podcast, by any means basketball. It's like a lot of players I think would get better if you just cut down your work week from 21 hours to 15 hours and just put in more intent and quality into those hours that you work. Like a lot of people do things just to do things and they don't know why they're doing it because somebody else did it. That's like, I'm going to do this drill because LeBron does it. It's like, okay, well, are you LeBron? No. you Do you pay a million dollars for your body to be in the tip top shape the entire year? Like, no. Okay. So then figure out your purpose. Why are you doing it? So, having a purpose i think too many athletes do things without a purpose
0: i love it well that is all that i have i appreciate it is there somewhere on ig twitter um that people can follow you or reach out if they have any questions
1: yeah if anybody has questions i'm translational underscore training at twitter i do not have, or sorry on ig that's translational underscore training i don't have a twitter um i have a website translationaltraining.com that I just made out of sheer boredom during quarantine. <laughs> um Yeah, no, but other than that, uh, like I'm an open mind. I, I appreciate you having me on here. I, I I love talking shop. If anybody has any questions or anything like that, feel free to ask me anything.
0: I I just absolutely love engaging with with the minds in this field. Awesome, and I, I, for those listening, I'll link his stuff down in the description. So if you missed that. Um, So once again, Alex, thank you for for coming on, giving us some knowledge. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can maybe do it again in the future. And that is a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate the support. As always, it means a lot for me. And I had an absolute blast today talking with Alex. So I highly recommend reaching out to him. If you do have any questions, he's a very knowledgeable and smart guy and knows his stuff. So he can really help you out. As always, stay safe, stay happy, find some gratitude. Peace.